And I'm sure you know when I say that, I'm referring to election season. This is when we see ads on television that tell us things like, uh, I'm going to lower your taxes, improve your schools, reduce crime, improve the training of police officers, all at the same time. And I think when we hear that, or at least when I do, I, I have just a hint of doubt. Uh, I, I lack certainty in those promises. And I think that when I hear somebody make a promise to me, and I, and I have doubt about that promise, I have to ask myself, well, why is that? Well, one of the reasons is because you doubt the person making the promise. You, you don't feel they're trustworthy. For instance, when you guys have seen those same ads or seen them online for, for the lower taxes and the better schools and uh, lower crime, I wonder, do you spend the rest of the day sort of with a little bit of a skip in your step because you know come January everything's going to be better? Like, do you hold that promise in your heart? Uh, when you open your paycheck and there's a big chunk taken out for taxes, do you say, you know, it doesn't really matter. A couple of months from now, it's going to be all better. Or are you like me and you feel like, I don't know if I can trust that promise. So it can be that we don't trust a promise because the person making it's not trustworthy. It can also be that the reason we don't trust a promise is because something that's lacking in ourselves. Uh, I'll give you an example of this from my family. Um, Last week, I talked a little bit about my family, and you guys weren't here. It's a little harder this time. But um, I have made promises to my kids on occasion, things like, if you get an A in algebra, I'm going to get you a new phone. And the point there is to try to motivate them, right, to, to go through a season of great challenge and come out, you know, with an A. But they struggle with that promise, and they struggle with believing that that's going to happen. And I don't think it's all because they don't trust me. I, my track record for promises to my kids, are, it's actually fairly good. Um, so when I say that I'll do that, I think they think, oh, in general, I think he's, you know, good for his word. And it's certainly not that the, the what I'm promising doesn't matter to them. Um, for my kids, a phone is life itself, okay? As a matter of fact, one of my kids lost their phone, it died this week. And he was very close to this phone. So it was, it was very hard for him. It's been a hard week for all of us as he sort of works through this loss. And I realized he's going through that. Well, I, and I don't want to say who it is out of disrespect for the person who's grieving. But it's been a struggle. As, the, the phone itself is, is sitting on a shelf in the kitchen. It's sort of lying in state. And I, I think it's because my son has this hope in resurrection that, you know, he's putting sort of, putting into this phone, and I, I hope he's right. The problem, the reason that they are not motivated by those promises, hey, I'll give you a phone if, if you get an A in algebra, I think, is because they hear one little word there, if. And that word reminds them that that promise, as wonderful as it is, is conditional. And it's conditioned on their behavior. And they know their track record. They're awesome, but occasionally they'll make a mistake. They'll step in the wrong direction. And they realize that that promise you know, is in jeopardy. And as long as we have promises where we're not sure about the outcome, those promises don't really motivate us. They don't really encourage us. They don't really sustain us in hard times. And they, they sort of lose their power in the moment. So what I want to talk about today is how God responds to this need that we have this need that we have for certainty when he makes a promise. And I want to do that by exploring um, 
Genesis 15. But before I do that, I just want to take one quick step back to give us a little context. There's really, we're really in the middle of three stories in Genesis. The first story was uh, Adam and Eve in um, chapters 2 and 4. Then we got Noah in chapters 6 to 9, and then Abraham in roughly chapters 12 to 23. And in each of those stories, we hear God offering a bond between himself and man. And he really offers three things. You can boil it down to an offer of people, place, and relationship. The offer of people, you hear it when he says to to Adam and Eve, go forth and multiply. And he says the same thing to Noah, go forth and multiply. He says to Abraham, I will multiply you. He's making a promise that you are are going to be my people and I'm going to grow you and make you flourish. He also offers place. He says, go and subdue this land. Sometimes he's talking about Eden. Sometimes he's talking about Canaan. Sometimes he's talking about the entire earth. But the message is always the same. He wants us to go forth. He wants us to subdue. He wants us to tame, to fill, to tend. And there's an offer of relationship. Now, he says this in a lot of different ways. But what he's saying is, in effect, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, when we hear that, what we're hearing is in the broadest outline is a covenant, is what he's, what he's offering to people. But we know... Anybody who's read their Bible more than one time, we know that Adam and Noah struggled, right? They rebelled, and so did the people that they were representing. They rebelled against those offers. And so if you're keeping score, the count's 0-2 right now, and now Abraham's stepping up to the plate in chapter 15. And so when you, when you know that, the first thing you should probably be thinking is, okay, I'm not too sure about this. This feels like one of those promises that I can't have a lot of certainty in. So with that context, let's start by reading Genesis 15, 1 to 8. After these things, the word of the Lord appeared, I'm sorry, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, Abraham, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So in this call to Abraham, we're hearing those promises again. We're hearing promises of people and place and relationship. He says, I'm going to multiply you. In verse 5, he says, I'm going to make you like the stars. He also says in another place, I'm going to make you like the sand on the seashore. He offers a place. He says, the very land you're standing on in verse 7, that very land is going to belong to you. And he offers relationship. He says, I'm going to be your shield. Don't be afraid. That means I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to reward you. These are amazing promises God is making. But we hear the problem. 
We hear the problem not in what God says, but in how Abraham responds. There's a lack of certainty when Abraham says, how am I to know? Now, we have to be careful not to assume that the problem here for Abraham is the person making the promises. I think Abraham has complete faith in God that he exists, that he is powerful, that he is loving. And Romans 4.20 affirms this when it says, um, oh, let's jump back one, I think, or forward one, I'm sorry. Romans 4.20 says, no belief made him waver, Abraham, concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So he's fully convinced that everything God said he could do, he could do. So, and verse 6 affirms it because it says that Abraham believed God. So the issue is not with his faith in God. The issue is just like that promise of a phone. Abraham feels on some level, like we talked about last week, that the fulfillment of this promise to some degree depends on his actions. He proves that in the very next chapter with Hagar, right? When he tries to, uh, like Jordan kind of said, we, he tries to, we kind of force God's promises or hijack them by our own, by our own, our own actions. Um, when Abraham hears these promises of people and place, I think he looks at himself and he feels very acutely his limitations, right? When he hears God say, people, he looks at himself and he says, you know, 85 years old with a barren wife. And when he hears God say, place, he, sa he thinks to himself, he looks where he's standing and says, I've been here 15 years now, and I don't own where, one square foot of this land, not one bit more than the day that I arrived. So he looks at the promises, then he looks at himself, he's aware of his failings, it creates doubt, and he asks himself, and he asks God, how can I know that this has happened, that this will happen? How can I have certainty? So what we need to see is, how does God respond to that very specific question? And that's verses uh, 8 to 11. Abraham says, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Okay, that's an odd answer to Abraham's question, right? Go get some animals. Um, but if we are familiar with covenant ceremonies, we sense where this is going. And Abraham senses where this is going because you see, Abraham doesn't need a lot of direction after God says to get the animals. He knows what to do because he knows, oh, I see what's happening here. Uh, he, if Abraham would be familiar with covenants because covenants were a way of making agreements in this culture. And a covenant can definitely answer the question, how can I know? How can I be sure this will happen? Typically, a covenant, if I were to describe it, it's, it's an agreement between two parties, all right? Usually one party is superior and one is inferior. Um, the inferior is often a mediator for a larger group. 
So for instance, when Adam and uh, God are making a covenant, Adam is representing or mediating for all of mankind. There's also promises and obligations in the covenant. Those promises and obligations are usually dictated by the superior in the relationship. So it's not a negotiating table. It's not a, you know, if you do this, will you do that? Okay, shake hands. The superior says, I'm going to do these things, you're going to do these things, and that's going to be our agreement. So a, an example might be a king in Abraham's day might come to a, a clan leader, and that clan leader might mediate on behalf of the entire clan, and he might say, you're going to give me one-third of the wool that your sheep produce, and I'm going to protect you and all of your tribe from invaders. Now, there's not a... Um, there's no lawyers, there's no notaries, there's no courts to ratify this. So there's got to be a penalty that's set. And the penalty was often death. We see that with Adam and Eve, right? If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. That's why we call it a bond in blood. And there was a ceremony that sort of ratified this agreement. And it bonded the two parties together. Uh, it might just be a meal. It might just be, you know, wine and bread. Or a covenant might be a sacrifice, or it might be, in this case, this, this kind of bizarre cutting up of animals uh, that Abraham seems, seems aware of. But when they cut the animals, what would happen is they would lay the animals side by side in a row. And then the superior and the inferior parties would, would probably lock arms and walk between the animals. And they were publicly acknowledging, without a lawyer, without a court, without a police officer, we have this agreement. And there's, there's consequences if the agreement's broken. And the consequence is whoever breaks the agreement, whoever doesn't fulfill their part of the covenant, well, may their body be broken just like these animals' bodies that you see here. And may their blood be spilled just like you see. And they would walk through and the blood's kind of running through on their sandals. And it's a very grisly, vivid reminder that I'm sure stuck with them uh, as long as contracts stick with us. But before that actual ceremony takes place, God makes a, he kind of stops the action, right? And he makes a declaration in verses 12 to 16. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So I think what we're hearing there in that sort of interruption, when God says, we interrupt this ceremony because I, I want to make a statement, is we're hearing a promise being affirmed. The promise being affirmed has to do with the people in the place we talked about. God says, know for certain. That's his way of saying, now hear this. Four times he mentions offspring in this, in this little declaration to Abraham. In verses 13, 14, 16, and 18, he talks about what his offspring are going to be doing. And he mentions place two times. The last time in verse 18, he says very emphatically, to your offspring, I will give this land. So there's definitely an affirmation of promise in this. 
but we, we know we're hearing more than that. We're hearing something that doesn't sound like a promise, or at least it doesn't sound good. Um, God wants Abraham to know, I think, that at least for a time, that the promise that God is making is going to seem like it's void. That there are going to be times in Abraham's life and times in Abraham's children's and descendants' lives when the promise of place and people is going to seem very, very far away. Uh, he, he says, basically, there's going to be times where you're not going to be in this land that I've promised. And there's going to be times where you're my people, but you're going to belong to somebody else. Why does he do this? Why does he give Abraham this bad news? Well, I mean, I know one easy answer. He wants to show that he's God. So he wants to show, I have control over the future. I have control over events. I have complete sovereignty in this. And there's a lot of interesting specifics, like 400 years. And he mentions the Amorites by name. So what's really neat about that is when it all happens, nobody can say, well, I think it was coincidence. You know, it was a lucky guess. Um, it's definitely not. But I think there's more to it. I think the real purpose of that disclosure is that God, in a sense, is saying, um, Abraham, I have a plan, and I can tell you this, that my plan is nothing like your plan, and so I want to prepare you now. So in disclosing those trials and suffering, it makes it so that when they occur for those people, they can look back on this promise, right, and they can be uh, encouraged. They can have greater confidence in the middle of those trials. They can have greater faith. They can be less discouraged. And what's interesting to me about this is by including those things in the promise, by putting them in writing, God is actually making that promise more powerful in his people's lives while they're going through trials. That promise retains its power to encourage and to sustain and I think the same thing is true for us today. You know, the promises that we hear God making to Abraham, to Noah, to Adam, of people, of place, of relationship, he's, he's saying the same things to us, right? He says, I want to make you my people. I want you to go to a place that I'm preparing for you. I want to be in relationship there with you forever. I want to abide with you and for you to abide with me. We have those same promises. We have that same assurance by this covenant. But like Abraham, in the meantime, God is saying, there's going to be hard times. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be dead ends. There's going to be death. There's going to be worry. There's going to be waiting. There's going to be confusion. And it's not that God is saying, I'm warning you now, there may be hard times. He's doing much more than that. He's saying, I promise you now, there will be hard times. And within those hard times, he's saying, you can remain confident in my promise. You can have faith that the promise will be maintained, even in the midst of that trial. And it's sort of like, again, that, that promise of a phone. Um, only now, there's confidence, right, that the promise will be fulfilled. And that gives that promise real power in our lives Today, it's not just some future event. It sustains us right now. And one other thing I would mention, it, it doesn't just do that. Um, when God's speaking to Abraham and when he speaks to us, he never says, okay, going to be hard times. When those times are hard, 
I'm going to check out for a while. But don't worry, I will come back. That's not what he says. The only thing he says is, fear not, I am your shield. He doesn't say, I will be your shield. At times, I may be your shield. There are times when I have been your shield. He gives the eternal I am. I am your shield. That means that when there is a presence of trials, there is not an absence of God, right? He is always, I am your shield. And that means that when we are in trial, when we are suffering, he is always protecting us. He is always a shield. And he tells us, know this for certain. So if we are suffering, we don't just have his promise, we have his presence. I want to finish then, now that we've understood exactly what God is promising us, with verses 17 to 18, where God shows how this is going to happen. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, this is where things actually go a little bit off script. If you're a student of covenants, this is where you'd say, okay, the ritual's gotten a little odd here. I don't see um, what I'm expecting to see. And that does not surprise us as Christians because we know God is always, he always has a unique take on his covenant relationships with his people. He never follows the standard covenant agreement. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples, starting with Adam and Eve. We know that the covenant was broken under Adam and Eve, right? They ate from that tree that they were forbidden to eat from. Death was graciously postponed, which is wonderful. But also what's wonderful is that in the middle of chapter 3, when God is pronouncing this curse, right, on Abraham and on Eve and on the serpent, in that curse, he affirms the promise. And he does it three times. He does it with regard to people. He does it with regard to place. And he does it with regard to relationship. In the middle of the curse, he says to Eve, Eve, I promise you, difficulty in what? In childbirth. Right? What he's saying is, hard times are coming for you, but the promise of offspring, unchanged. It's going to be a little harder. And he says to Adam, you are going to have difficulty when you subdue what? The land. You are going to subdue it. The, the promise of a place is unchanged and unaffected. And what does he say about the serpent? He says, that serpent's head is going to be crushed. In other words, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I will protect you. And so God, amazingly, in the midst of what we call a curse, affirms the entire promise that he made to Adam and Eve. He does something very similar with Noah. Now, God takes a weapon of war, right, a bow. We think of rainbows and my little pony, but in this day, it, it represented a weapon of war. And he takes this symbol of a weapon of war. And what that symbol should be doing is it should be reminding us of the penalty of the covenant. Just like those animals laid split side by side, we should look at that and tremble. 
but he doesn't do it that way. He doesn't point the bow down at Noah as a sign of impending doom if Noah breaks the covenant. He points the bow up, right, into the sky at himself. And so now when we see a rainbow, we have this opportunity, you know, to teach our children. We can say, you know, life is full of hurricanes and storms and floods, figuratively and literally. And every one of those, whether it's figurative or literal, is a result of man breaking this world. But because of that rainbow that we see, we're reminded that every one of these storms will be calmed. And ultimately, we will live because our God has agreed to die. And so God takes this weapon, this symbol of war, and he turns it into a symbol of everlasting peace. Now when it comes to Abraham, he's going to do it again. He has this amazing twist. Abraham was awake for the promises, right? He was doing the cutting and the spreading and listening. But when it comes to the walking through, he's laid to rest, right? That's because God will not allow Abraham to represent man in this covenant. God will not allow him to mediate. God is saying, I'm going to represent both sides in this one. I am going to be the promise maker. I'm going to be the promise keeper. And in this way, and only in this way, will you be able to know for certain, which is what Abraham asked for, to know for certain. I hear this, and I'm listening for an if. And there's not an if. There's just a when. And that gives me confidence that this covenant is unconditional. And in fact, I think the covenants have always been unconditional. Um, I, I know that because he continuously renewed them in the face of man's disobedience. What's new here is now for the first time, God has revealed exactly how it's possible that he can keep renewing them over and over. How can he keep doing that? Well, he does that because of what he does right here by walking through those pieces alone, right? The, the torch and the pot by walking through alone. God is saying, if man's obligations in this covenant are not met, well, then it'll be my mediator whose body will be broken and whose blood will be spilled so that every promise I have made will be kept and that penalty paid. And so we ask ourselves, well, who is this mediator? Well, we know this. He's going to be God because we saw him walk through those animals. And we know this we know that he's going to have a physical body. He's going to have flesh and blood because it's, it's, the punishment is to be broken and bled. And so for Abraham, that's a very puzzling, very difficult picture for him to sort of figure out. Uh, but by God's providence and timing, not at all for us. Let's pray. Father, you promised Abraham a son would come, and that through his son, the world would be blessed. Abraham believed this promise, and you credited it to him as righteousness. So, Lord, now you make the same promise and the same offer to us, and we confess today that we also believe in the son who has already come and blessed the world. Like Abraham, we rejoice to see his day, and we're glad. We ask that you'd forgive our sins 
for which he paid the penalty. Uh, when, like the song said this morning, uh, he exchanged the joy of heaven for the anguish of the cross. We praise you for your promise of a people and a place and a relationship forever. And we look forward to its complete fulfillment. And we do that with confidence and hope, even when we're suffering. And we do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we do it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.